0: Well, it's good to have lots of visitors here today, and uh, particularly at this this time of year, it's the beginning of the Christmas season, and it's a time which has a lot of conflicting uh, agendas and and, uh, pressures on us as Christians, and oftentimes it's easy for us to find ourselves on on December 26th exhausted and uh, sitting there going, what just happened, and uh, thinking about how we're going to re-gift, and uh, <laughs> sort of the sundry other things. And this is the first week of Advent. Some of you maybe come from traditions where this is not part of your growing up and uh, your celebration, but I want us to begin to think about what, be, what happens here at this time of the year, Advent, and through the Christmas season, and to begin to think a little bit about how we live as people of God faithfully in a highly commercialized culture. It's a tough one. And uh, this time of year is not an easy time to live as a Christian. Yet it's the heart of our story, isn't it? And so Advent is the beginning of a church year. This is when it all starts for us in terms of our liturgical calendar. It's the beginning of something new. It's also winter solstice we're moving up towards. A great pagan festival, isn't it? Winter solstice is the shortest time of the year, and it was one of the great festivals of the pagan calendar. And we feel it, don't we? The days are getting shorter, the nights are getting longer, but it's not yet the bitter cold of winter. It's not like January, right? Uh, So we're outside, and we're we're about, and, and there's not yet snow on the ground. And as we walk down the streets, there's Christmas music playing, Rudolph and Santa Claus, and all sorts of other things, and there are lights everywhere. It's it's a time with with wonderful magic. It's a time where, where there's something in the air which catches us up short. It's a beautiful time. It's a time of sales everywhere. We've just come through the weekend. It's a time of advertising, of intense pressure to buy. But it's also time when we think about others in a way which we don't do any other time of the year. We turn out. Toy Mountain comes to mind as one example of of our turning out to the other. It's a time of food, of friendship, of good cheer. Andy Williams in his famous song says, it's the happiest season of all. I won't sing it for you. (laughs) And everything leads up to 36 hours of a frenzy of food and presents, doesn't it? Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, followed by Boxing Day with more shopping. And then we lose purpose and focus. We just kind of crash. The result is that for us as Christians, we light Advent candles. We tell stories over and over again, and Linus tells it the best. And we have this time where we go through the season, and the stories are so familiar, but we lose sight of them because there's so much else going on. But there's something about this, the power and the wonder of this Advent season and Christmas season which I don't want us ever to lose. We need to hold on to some of the, the beautiful things that we have. God did give his greatest gift to us at this time. The very Son of God himself is given to us and therefore it is only appropriate that we give generous gifts to others. We don't want to lose that. But I want to suggest to you that there's a deeper and a richer story that we want to add as a counterpoint to this. And as we go through Advent, we want... We want to have this counterpoint going on uh, in our lives. It goes back to the early days of the church. You see, once Advent was a season of preparation, not just for Christmas, but particularly for Epiphany. The great festival of the church was not Nativity, but Epiphany. Any of you know what Epiphany is about? January 6th, the Magi arrive, and it also celebrates Jesus' baptism. Everything was leading up to that. So through this whole Advent season and up to the Feast of Nativity, there's a time of prayer, of fasting. Now think about that this time of year, finding time to do all this. Prayer, fasting, personal examination. Because what's going on? We're wanting to make our hearts a place where the Incarnation can happen afresh. I want Jesus to come in and dwell me in a fresh way, just as he does in Bethlehem on that day 2,000 and some years ago. Now, Christmas is celebrated way back, but it takes a big change in the mid 300s. I'm a historian, so you're going to have to live with this. Uh, Constantine, who's the emperor of Rome in the, early th- in the early 300s, does something really quite important for us. He builds a big church called the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem, and he declares Christ's birthday a national holiday. And there's nothing like a stat to get people to focus on something and to party. And so Christmas changes character quite dramatically when it becomes a stat. Another thing happens. Julius, who's the bishop of Rome, declares December 25th is going to be the day we celebrate Christ's birth. Not because that's the day he was born, but for theological reasons. Remember, we talked about this as being the time of solstice, just before we have the shortest day of the year. December 25th is the first day ancient peoples could calculate that the day was longer. It was the first day that they could calculate the day was getting longer. And so, in honor of the fact that Light is breaking into the darkness, and the dark, darkness could not overcome it. The darkness could not hold it back. We celebrate Christ's birth on December 25th because it's the first day we can calculate the day is getting longer. Light is breaking in. At this time when all seems dark, when their hope is gone, light breaks in. And so we celebrate. Christ is come. And we set this aside as, as a birthday. And these two things turn it into a quite a joyous event. So, and the early church now is going to hold on to these two things in tension, a time of reflection, a time of preparation, a fasting of prayer, and celebration. But what are they waiting for? What are they anticipating? And this brings us back to our text, this story of Mary, this beautiful song of Mary. And the song of Mary is one of those songs which comes down to us. We sing it. It's one of my favorite songs when sung at this time of year. And uh, it's a powerful song which has tremendous consequences if we actually listen to it. Did you know that at many points in the 20th century, people would take Mary's song, they would print it up on a little piece of paper, and they would hand it out on the street corner without any comment, and they would be thrown in jail and charged with political treason? Did you know that? That happened on many occasions here in the 20th century, here in our Western Hemisphere. Think about what this song song does. It does something quite profound. First of all, it takes shame and it turns shame to honor. Women were objects of a shame. Elizabeth is a woman who suffers great shame because she was barren. God takes away her shame and gives her the honor of having a, a child, a son. Mary is about to enter into a place of great shame as she becomes a pregnant, unmarried woman in, in this particular culture. And God says, yes, there's going to be great shame, but I'm going to turn it on its head and you will be called by all people blessed. Shame is taken away and we are given honor. But more than that, women are given voice. Mary is the only person who articulates powerfully and wonderfully what is about to happen when Christ arrives. Just as at the end of the story, the first people who are told to become evangelists and, and apostles are women, aren't they? Go, Jesus says to these women, go and tell. So at the beginning of the story, it's Mary who says, this is what is about to happen. And what's about to happen? Something with profound political, economic, and social implications is about to happen. The world is going to be stood on its head. All those promises which the prophets are told, uh, foretold are about to start to happen. They're beginning to break in. The proud, the haughty, the mighty are going to be brought down. Those dictators, those people who rule and lord it over people, those people who take the food away from the the poor, the rich are going to be turned away hungry. The poor are going to be fed. The lowly are going to be raised up. This is the promise of what happens when Christ comes in the second coming. And so Advent literally is the Latin word Adventus, and it's the translation of the Greek word parousia which is the word we use to talk about the second coming. So we are waiting for Christ to return. We're anticipating the return when those things which begin to happen in Advent now are going to occur in fullness. And so this is a profoundly significant passage. Mary sings about something which is going to happen. We're waiting for this. We're longing for this. We're hungry for this because we read the stories, we watch the news, we know what's going on in South Sudan, we know what's going on in Burma, we know what's going on in Eastern Congo, we know what's going on in North Africa, and we long, we desperately long for something to happen. And so we're waiting in anticipation that God will do what God has promised to do. And as we come into Advent, we're saying, Lord, begin to do this and start with me. Start with me. May I be one who begins to live this way. May I be one who begins to treat people this way. And so we become people who are waiting, who are longing, who are starting to turn things on its head. And I can wait because I have a promise. Henry Nouwen wrote a beautiful little book called Finding My Way Home. And in that book, he talks about waiting. Waiting's never easy, especially for North Americans, because waiting seems like such a waste of time. But we can wait through Advent because we have a promise. And we see this with the five characters at the beginning of the story, don't we, in Advent? Zechariah and Elizabeth, Simeon and Anna, and Mary. All of them are given a promise, and all of them have to wait. Something begins to happen inside of them with this promise. There's a seed which is planted. It begins to germinate. You can't see it, but we know it's there, because God has made a promise. And so we can wait through Advent. We can allow this to begin to be a time of reflection, of preparation of anticipation of something which does not yet seem to be because we know God has promised. This is what Advent is about. It requires trust on our part. And we can only do this together. You can't wait well alone. What's the first thing that Mary does after she's given the promise? Packs up her stuff, heads up to her cousin Elizabeth's place up in the hill country, and they wait together. Community is the place where courage and trust in God grows. As we go through Advent, it's very important for us to come together as a people of God and to begin to start to pray and to long and to talk about what we anticipate God is doing and to pray that God will do it now. So we wait, we prepare, we fast, we pray, we buy presents, we light Advent candles, and then We celebrate. We celebrate because in the arrival of Christ, these things begin to break in, and we have the privilege of beginning to start to show them to the world. And so how long do we celebrate as Christians? Not 36 hours. When everybody else is crashed and sitting there with turkey overload, going, what do we do now? Christians, we thumb our nose at them. And we say, we know how to party. And for 12 days, we party, right? There are 12 days of Christmas, not one. There are 12 days to Christmas. So from the early days of the church, we've been celebrating 12 days of Christmas. Boxing Day is not one of them. This is the most important thing that has ever happened in the history of the cosmos. The very God, the one by whom and through whom all things were created, has become a human being has entered into our world. And so that calls for a really good party, and you can't do that in 36 hours. It takes 12 days. It's a party which has shape. And so when you think about the 12 days of Christmas, uh, they're not just random. There are three festivals after the Feast of Nativity, which root our understanding of what it means to celebrate for 12 days. The first one is the Feast of St. Stephen. That's December 27th, or sorry, uh, December 26th. Instead of Boxing Day, we celebrate the Feast of St. Stephen. Instead of going out and, and lining up with your pepper spray, you remember that happened in the front of Walmart downstate, trying to get to the front of the line. Instead of doing that, we celebrate the Feast of St. Stephen. Stephen is that first deacon. And you remember him. He does what? What is his role? He takes care of the poor, and he gets to die a martyr. And so we celebrate the good gifts God gives us. We get to take care of the poor, and we might even be given a chance to share in the sufferings of Christ to the fullest. But it's caught in that song. You remember the the Christmas carol, Good King Wenceslas? What does he do? He looks out on the feast of Stephen. And then what does he do? He gets food, and he goes and gives it to the poor person. That's what this is all about. On Boxing Day, we remember what Jesus says in Matthew 25. As much as you've done, done to one of the least of these, you've done it to me. So we invite the poor in. We give them food. We share life with them. And so the heart of our 12 days of partying is recognize that Jesus comes to us in the least of these. And so our party is inclusive. It opens up and embraces people who do not have. And the second feast... After the feast of Saint Stephen is the feast of John the Evangelist, which is the twenty-seventh. So you can see we're getting the foundations laid. Nativity—that's uh, the big one. We all—we've all got that one down cold, right? And we don't have to talk about that. But then the feast of Saint Stephen, and then the feast of John the Evangelist. John's the only one of all the disciples who doesn't die a martyr, according to tradition. So on December twenty-seventh, we celebrate him. What does he do? He bears witness through his words. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was made flesh. And in celebrating the Feast of St. John the Evangelist, we remember that our task in these 12 days of Christmas is to talk a lot, to tell the story. Our task is to tell the story to over and over and over again to people who have not heard it, because most people in our culture have never heard it. They know nothing about this. They know who Santa Claus is. They've got a pretty good idea of who the Grinch is. And, uh, you know, you can go on down the list, but Jesus, well, we're not quite sure. And so we root ourselves in the story of Jesus' arrival, and then we, we enter into and feed the, and take care of those who have need, and we tell stories. And then the third feast on this, so one's the 26th, 27th, and the 28th of December, we celebrate the Feast of Holy Innocence. Do you remember the Holy Innocents? Those children who are slaughtered in Bethlehem by King Herod? It's one of the really dissonant stories in the whole, in the whole narrative, isn't it? They don't die out of any heroic vision for Christ, nor were they inspired to speak of the word of, of life that's broken in. They die unjustly before they had any chance to know or to will, but they die for Christ nonetheless. And when we celebrate the Feast of Holy Innocence, we see these young children in all of their agony who suffer and die through human injustice. And so we remember, and we stand in solidarity with victims of injustice all over the world, and we renew our faith that the coming of Christ brings hope to the most hopeless. Okay? So we have twelve days to party. Our party is rooted in this baby. We're going to tell a story over and over and over again. We're going to invite people in to share food with us, to share uh, space with us, and we're going to sign petitions for Amnesty International. We're going to welcome refugees. We're going to speak out on behalf of those who are suffering injustice because these are the things that we do as Christians when we party. We celebrate that good news is coming, and good news is coming for all these people. And so our celebration is rooted, it's turned outward always. And then our great festival is January 6th, Epiphany. It all moves to this point, the last day of Christmas. And in the Eastern Church, this is still a bigger festival than than the Festival of Nativity on the 25th. On the 6th of January, on Epiphany, remember that the Magi arrived and we also remember Jesus' baptism. So these people come from afar, Gentiles, who wouldn't normally get this great story told to them. Those people who've never heard the story are now going to hear. So it reminds us that after the celebration of Christmas, we enter into, in a deep and profound way, into mission. We turn outward. Christmas is not just about getting back into the rhythm of of January, and January is kind of a depressing time, By the end of January, most Canadians are clinically depressed, right? Because the days are short, it's gray, it's dull. But we as Christians are caught in in a sense of mission. We have turned outward, and we've begun to take this wonderful story, which we've been partying over for 12 days, and we're now starting to move it outward. Because we're going to bear witness to the light of Christ in the darkness. So, don't take down your Christmas decorations. Rather, leave them up until January 6th and join with the church over the centuries and add new depth to your time of celebration. Buy presents and fast and pray and examine your motives. Drink eggnog and apple cider and light Advent candles and remember what God is working in this season. Party well. For 12 days, celebrate the arrival of the Christ child, but do it by inviting the poor, telling the story, and speaking of this new world that Mary proclaims. And then, with a new sense of mission and purpose, now birthed in us afresh, let it find its expression in you as you live out your daily life, a life of incarnation.